0: Please be seated. Thank you. I'm impressed. It feels like the hottest day of the year, and you guys are here in this room, uh, ready to uh, listen to some more doctrine, some important doctrine. So welcome back to Foundations, and uh, we're continuing through the doctrines of grace, uh, asking ourselves the questions of how does salvation work? Last week, I gave the... Uh, kind of the word picture. of taking a peek under the bonnet a little bit about what's going on in this whole work of salvation. As in this term, we've been looking at the person of Christ, who is he? And in salvation, what has he done for us? And so we've been working our way through these doctrines. And again, I'm going just to review some of them because they are all connected and they build and um, You can't really progress through them all without nailing them initially at the beginning. So over these first few weeks, we started asking the question about us as human beings, how much has sin impacted us as human beings? And we answered that by saying that it's so completely impacted us that we cannot and we will not take positive steps towards God unless something happens in us first, unless he does something in us first. A few weeks ago, we looked at this choice of whose whose choice takes precedence in salvation. Is it a matter of God looking and seeing our choice and then responding to it? Is it dependent or is it independent? We said, no, it's not dependent on anything that God saw in human beings, their faith. Where could that faith come from? If we ask the first question of how much it's impacted us, it has to come from him. So it's an independent choice. And then last week, we looked at this really tricky doctrine called particular redemption, otherwise known as limited atonement, which basically answers the question, for whom exactly did Christ die? What did it do? Did it make kind of a blanket provision for the world, or was Jesus dying specifically For some one group to accomplish something for them. That his death actually accomplished the salvation for those for which he died. So that's where we've gotten to this point. And tonight we're on to a new question. The question we're looking at tonight is what causes, if we are so thoroughly impacted by sin, as I described, what causes resistant rebels like us to freely turn to Christ? What causes resistant rebels like us to freely turn to Christ? Now, I have phrased that question in a loaded way that I hope you'll see as we go through my answer to it. Um, because the, the answer to that is God's grace, <laughs> it's a specific kind of grace, does something in those who respond to him that enables them to do so, which is why we call it effective grace. It accomplishes what God sets it out to do. It transforms resistant rebels whose natural inclination is to say, I don't want God. I want my own way. I'm happy. Thank you very much. I'm going to do things on my own terms. I don't need God. It takes a person like that, which we'll review again, is all of us, and it transforms those people so that they have a change of mind and a change of heart. And they freely turn to Christ. Now, in its traditional wording, this doctrine is known as irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, which, again, every week I've pretty much said this statement. That's a little misleading. Okay? Irresistible grace can, can be misleading because the Bible is clear Um, that resisting God's grace is something we are all universal experts at. It is a universal experience of all human beings to resist God, to resist the grace of God. We've looked at this passage several times throughout these weeks, but I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It should be on the screen, the side screens. And it, again, describes our situation of resisting God. And living our lives in that way. He says, as for you, you were, remember, dead in your transgressions and sins. And we said that means dead, dead, completely dead. And notice it says in verse two, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the earth. If if there's a follower of anything, it's not of God and his ways. But rather, more characteristic would be enslaved To Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So we we naturally resist God. God's grace is resisted every day, even in our own lives. It doesn't mean that God's grace is incapable of being resisted resisted. And on top of that, it can make it sound as though God coerces people into his kingdom against their will. Something along the lines of Darth Vader, if you put up the next picture, where he said to Luke, right, he said to him, it is pointless or it is futile to resist. This idea that God, at some people say, I just can't believe that God would drag people into his kingdom who don't want to be there. Or that people who really, really want to be there will not get to be there. And both of those statements are patently false. God doesn't drag anyone into the kingdom against their will. But nor would anybody, apart from him working, actually want to go. So both statements are false. Effective grace, what we're talking about tonight, better describes what God, what is happening when God calls those whom he has elected to faith in Christ. It's a grace that accomplishes what God sets it out to do. He calls, and we'll, we'll get into what we talked about last week and the week prior, of what it means for, for God's choice. God's call is what's happening here, calling the elect to faith in him. So let's just talk a little bit about what this means, this idea of God calling people to faith in Christ and how effective grace makes sure, ensures that that happens. So at one level, if we look at John chapter 6, I'm going to turn in my Bible there. It should be on the screens for you. We see throughout the pages of scripture this idea of a a general or a universal call of the gospel to the world. We, we looked at this last week when, we, when I put forth what we've put forth as a church that in Reformed theology that there's this idea that Jesus laid down his life for a select group of people. It was sufficient for the sins of the world, but it was efficient for only one group of people, those whom he had predestined. So at one level there is this universal call of the gospel that you see in John chapter 6 in verse 47 where it says, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. However, if we were to back up in John chapter 6 just a little bit to verse 44, Jesus also said these words, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me Draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so, while there is this universal call of the gospel that we, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, are commanded to be involved in, whether we are a public mouthpiece like some of us, or in private conversation, or through the ministry of this church, or other things, we are called (laughs) to be a part of that universal call of the gospel to all people. But it's God's effective grace that's a different kind of call, as we see in verse 44, of him drawing people to himself. It's through God's effective grace that rebellious resistance to him is overcome, not through compulsion of God coercing us and saying, come on, you're coming with me, like an angry parent dragging a rebellious child to the car, right? Come on, would you go? Come on, stop kicking and screaming. No, no. He transforms us. He transforms us through his effectual call, through regeneration, through his spirit, through a response to the gospel. Look at verse 63 of John's gospel. He says, the spirit gives life. Remember in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our transgressions. And it's the spirit that comes and regenerates and gives life. Jesus says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. See, what happens is that God doesn't coerce us. Those whom he calls, he transforms. He regenerates them. He gives them life, calls them from death to life. And having been given a new nature, and this nature is positively inclined to God. It's a nature that says, oh... (laughs) he's wonderful. This is unbelievable. Look at what he's done for for me, for my sins, how he sent his son. And instead of saying, no, I don't want that, and runs the other way, that heart repents. Changes its mind. Changes its direction and runs towards him. Positively inclined towards him. And this is why it results in what it's sent out to do. Why we call it effective grace or effectual grace, an effectual call. Turn back in your Bible a few pages or if you have a screen, flick back a few screens to, uh, to John chapter 3 and, and Jesus spoke of this need for someone to be able to respond to God positively. When he was interacting with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in verse 3, Jesus said, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless there is this new birth that happens within them. And Nicodemus in verse 4 is like, how can this be? How can someone enter their mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, no, I tell you the truth in verse 5. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and spirit. Now, Now listen to this. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell from where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying there's a birth of the Spirit that enables people to, to see. It's this new birth that lays the groundwork, as we're going to go through here, for this positive response to God. This is what enables, what transforms resistant rebels, which is what we all are, apart from this work, to freely turn to Christ. No one forced against their will. Now just real quick, by way of side comment, there will be people who say, but you know that verse you just read in John chapter 6, where it says, no one can come to the Father unless uh, he draws him and that word that, 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 that's used, draw, some will say, well, you know, that word, what it means is that actually it's used in some literature to draw water out of a well. And it's this kind of this idea of, you know, wooing someone, I guess is. But the word actually has a much greater force than that. It actually has this idea of a sense of compulsion. And think about it, by the way. We don't live in a society like this where we have to draw water out of a well. But how do you draw water out of, out of a well? It's not rocket science. It's not trick question. It's we, we, you lower a bucket down in there, right? And then you, as the one who says, I want that water up here, pulls the water up. You could sit at the edge of a well all day saying, it's great up here. Come on up. Come, come, come. I have a great cup for you. You can jump in and you'll be fulfilled and happy and all you were created to be, but it's not gonna happen. The water has to be moved. And that's what God does with those whose hearts are resistant to him and rebellious. He steps in in a way that enables people like you and me to respond to him. Now just to carry this idea forward, we're just gonna jump to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, should be on the the side screens as I thumb through my dead tree version here. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want you to look at verses 13 and 14. Again, this idea of what the Spirit does in enabling us this birth so that we can See verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words uh, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truth in spiritual truths and spiritual words. Now listen, verse 14. "The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned there's an element in which it's impossible even to fully grasp and appreciate what he's saying here is that there's a work of the spirit in a person's life that enables them to understand spiritual truth and enables them to actually be drawn by that to the God who causes them to be brought to life Now interestingly, we're gonna talk a little bit about how this comes into real life. How does it come into our our ministry as a church? Um, How does it come into our, our ministry as just followers of Jesus Christ as we're entrusted with the gospel? Because remember again, there is this universal call of the gospel to which we are all called to be a part of. That is something we have a say in, so to speak. That God uses us. But this effectual call, we have no part in that. I wish sometimes, I wish I could could say this because I stand up here and preach. And there's times as a preacher you just wish you could stop the tape. That's old. Stop the film, right? Whatever it is. And go to people's hearts and minds and just throw a few switches. And say, you know, let them get this. Let them get this. Let them get this. And let this be their heart response. And you close it up. But there's, there's someone who's way better at that. Third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. And he, that's his job. That he is the one who brings this new birth and enables and draws people to Jesus. My job is not to stop the tape and throw the switches. <laughs> Nor is it yours in your personal evangelism. Or what it's simply our responsibility to bear witness to Jesus, a Savior for sinners. So in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, verse 5 we'll start at, where Paul says, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Now, do you see how these elements of a general call here's Apollos, here is Paul, how does he describe them? Servants. There was nothing extraordinary about their rhetoric, about their speech, about anything. What he draws attention to is not their skill and not their. He says, no, uh, we're servants. We bore witness to Christ. We sowed the seed of the gospel. But what was it or who was it that caused there to be a reaction that brought life? And there's one answer. It's God. That God is the one, the only one, who made it grow. So this is what we talk about. When we think of an effective grace, it's one that has an effective call And it's something that we can't see or observe except as it bears out in people's lives. And in reality, this is why we're here as a church. This is why we exist, to be used of God in the general proclamation of the gospel. And he honors that by calling people to life. And then we have this enormous joy of walking alongside one another in this body called the church to become more like him, to make disciples. We've put it this way as a church. We've probably heard this before. We'll, we'll say it more. <laughs> that King's Church exists to invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with King Jesus. How can we say that if we know not all people will respond? In fact, if not all people can respond, one, because God says, invite all people. It's simple. <laughs> and the effectual call cannot happen without the general call. I can't walk the streets of Chessington and say, there's one, yep, they're elect, yep, they're elect, that one, yep, that one, that one's walking a little funny, maybe not. <laughs> I can't know that, nor can you. What can we know? That God says to us, share the good news of Jesus, and I will call those who are mine, from death to life. That's how we can do this with a clear conscience that we can invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with their king. So as we think about effectual calling in this whole process of, we talked about total depravity or pervasive corruption. Um, We talked about unconditional election or really sovereign choice. Um, we talked last week about particular redemption. This one, effective calling, effective grace. There's a quote I want to share with you from a a great book written by James Montgomery Boyce, um, The Doctrines of Grace. And he says this, so effectual calling, this is that point at which the eternal foreknowledge, so when God in eternity past chose who would be his and predestination of God, it passes over into time and it's the, it's the start, the process by which an individual is drawn from sin to faith in Christ is justified through that faith and then is kept in Christ until his or her final glorification. So this effectual call is where we start to see things. <laughs> this is where we start to see salvation happening before our very eyes. As people turn from sin and self. And somehow, have you ever wondered how it happens? That some wretch (laughs) says, this is for me. That the person who just seems so far beyond the gospel is changed. And now the person who seems so nice and so close yet is still a rebel at heart may even be in the orbit of the church, but never bends their knee to King Jesus. It's this idea of effectual calling. And on your sheet, and we'll have on the screen there, you see this idea that is kind of alluded to in this quote that I mentioned about what is called the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. And if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, we looked at these verses last week. Romans chapter 8 is where we find these words come out in a way that as we think about this chain, I'll explain in just a moment. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, remember it's not what God foreknew, it's who God foreknew. That God did not look down and see faith. God could easily, God, has, God is omniscient. He, he doesn't have uh, chronological learning. <laughs> he doesn't go from here to here and say, oh, I never knew that. Steve was going to put his faith in Jesus. No, he has instantaneous knowledge of all things whatsoever. So to think of God knowing something beforehand is almost a misnomer. God foreknew who would be his, it's a love choice. It's who he foreknew. And then what does it say? He also predestined, to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so what you have here is the first two links in this chain. And the idea of this chain is that once it starts, it, is, it goes through to completion to the end. That they're, in, they're inseparably linked. That when God says he foreknew who would be his, it, was almost as, as it is as guaranteed as it being done. Whom he foreknew, and it speaks of it in past tense, he also glorified, meaning in heaven, with him, glorified. It's spoken of as one thing, but we are peering under the bonnet to see all the different pieces moving and working. He says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. And this is that specific That effective call, not a general call to the world, right? This is a specific call. And if actually I challenge you, go through the New Testament and if you have an old school, you know, concordance in the back as it's called and you find the word call or if you want to use your Bible app, you'd be surprised how many times this word call is used specifically of those who have responded in faith called to be disciples, called to be holy, called to be in Christ. It's a specific thing. It's an effective thing. He says, whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. Now wait a minute. Let's start, let's start trying to insert here things that we see and maybe have questions about. Like where did faith go? Where did faith in Jesus go? What about this regeneration thing? And that's what I just want to maybe add in there. If you could put a little dot or two dots between called and justified, this is what we've been talking about tonight. Is this idea of regeneration and then faith and repentance. Because Paul in the book of Romans says it's faith and repentance. It's faith that leads someone to be justified in God's eyes. But where did that faith come from? From him. From him calling dead people to life. From him calling to a resistant rebel, saying, calling us by name. Regeneration, so that we can look at Jesus and say, yes. And have sorrow and repentance over how we have lived, Ephesians 2.1. Not following him, following the ways of this world, following our own hearts and desires, like the, uh, all children uh, by nature—children of nature of, uh, of wrath—that we deserve wrath. Sorry, I got stumbled over my words there for a second. Um, so that he says, foreknown, predestined, called, regenerated, faith and repentance, justified. Right? I see you guys chuckling in the back. I, I, I'm with you there. All right. So <laughs> justified. But then, what does he say? glorified. But there's stuff in between there too. What happens after we're justified? He sees us as innocent, as if we've never sinned, and he declares that we're his, his children. He adopts us. And then he begins the work of sanctification within us. These are between justified and glorified so that one day we're actually with him. Now why did I bring you this chain of redemption? as it's called, because everything we've been talking about over the last few weeks is what this chain is about. If we start our journey with pervasive corruption and nail that, then everything else we've been talking about over the last few weeks is, by, by, by virtue of that, a necessity, and as we understand the scriptures in this way to say, if, if that's who we are, then it was necessary for God in eternity past to say, this one will be mine. And then work in history to make that happen. So much so that when he said, and this has boggled my mind as I've thought about my own story. <laughs> Maybe it's caused you to do the same as we've talked about this. But I was thinking about the night. 11 years old, I was like a fusion kid at some random church that the, my, my mother dragged me to that I didn't want to go to. I wanted to stay home and watch wrestling or something. Something that was significant, right? But something happened that night that I cannot explain other than what we've been going through that I heard the words of the gospel. And there was this almost physical reaction in my body that I was like, I don't know why, but I need that. I have no explanation for it. And I responded that night. Why did that happen? Because God made it happen. And when he said it was going to happen, it happened. (laughs) And if he says it's going to happen, then I know I can have the confidence that I'll be with him glorified one day as well and if that's your story the same is true of you but I think the the shadow side of this if there is one is is in knowing and being certain that this is true of you to Peter I just want to go here really quick and we'll 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 tie this up to Peter chapter 1 I want us to focus on verses 10 and 11, but it, it says this in verse 3. He starts off by saying, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. There it is again. <laughs> it wasn't what He saw in us. It's His own glory and goodness that He called us unto Himself. Then in verse 10, He says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Now, in between these verses I just read, he's talked about this journey of maturity, this journey of sanctification, much like what Mike talked about the week prior, Sunday morning, about pressing on to maturity, of not having this kind of lax attitude about our response to Jesus and where that leads us. And Peter is saying to them to continue growing, to make your calling and election sure. If you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, I think Peter writes these things and, and the writer of Hebrews in a similar way because there is an enormous Risk of being in a room like this or Sunday morning or in Youth Works or wherever it is and hearing the general call of what Jesus has done for sinners, and in a sense, respond to a certain call, but not that call to your heart to put faith in Jesus. I want to read a a quote from an old Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia. Talking about these two calls. And he says, If if men heed no more than the outward call, they become members of the visible church. If the inward call is heard in our hearts, we become members of the invisible church. The first call unites us merely to a group of professing members. But the inward call unites us to Christ himself and to all that have been born again. The outward call may bring with it a certain intellectual knowledge of the truth. The inward call brings us the faith of the heart, the hope which anchors us forever to Christ, and the love which must ever draw us back to him who first loved us. The one who can end in the one can end in formalism meaning we just respond to the outward call, get connected to church, kind of, what's everybody do around here? Okay, they don't do this, they don't do that. You kind of socially conform. The other results in true life. The outward call may curb the tendencies of the old nature and keep a soul in outward morality. And by the way, usually judging others who step out of that morality, right? But the inward call will cure the plague that is in us and bring us on to triumph in Christ. There are many who get converted to church. There are many who answer the call to belong. But I wonder tonight, and over the last few weeks, have you been hearing the call of a Savior who says, come to me, and find your rest? Come to me. I'm the only salvation for sinners. See, all of this is great in theory. Close the bonnet again. Will you come to Jesus if you haven't? And if you have, I hope this is stirred within you, just this renewed sense of awe and wonder and gratitude and love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. (laughs) Thank you doesn't even capture, uh, Lord, what what we celebrate when we think about this idea that your grace is so powerful that it overcomes our resistance and transforms us so that we don't come kicking and screaming but running to the one who loved us. And Father, I pray tonight that by your spirit, you would be opening hearts and opening eyes. Lord, I pray that your spirit's call would continue to be strong. As the gospel is shared freely and broadly, Lord, we know it is by your spirit that you move in powerful ways to call the dead to life. And so, Lord, as we finish our time together and as we sing, Lord, I'm always just so mindful that if we exist to invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with King Jesus, and we have a talk like we do tonight, to say to those who may be among us who have been curious and exploring, but may be unconvinced, Lord, would you call them by name this night to turn to you in faith, repentance, and find life. Thank you, King Jesus, for all you've done. And we pray in your name, amen.